Well, it's a story that clearly identifies the sinful bent of the human heart. It's a story that shows our propensity toward rebellion. It's a story that makes us aware of the collateral damage that takes place through uh, or as a result of sin. And it's a story that exposes our pride and our inconsistency when it comes to who we believe deserves to be forgiven. But it's also a story that paints a beautiful picture of reconciliation and repentance. It's a story that puts the sovereignty and grace of God on display. And it's a, it's a story in which we see the indiscriminate call to repentance and belief. And it's a story that points us to Jesus. It's the story of Jonah, the prophet. Um, he's not a typical prophet because he wasn't called to uh, speak to Israel. It's not a typical prophetic book in that uh, the story focuses or the narrative focuses on the story of his experience rather than upon what he was to say. We don't know exactly who wrote the events down, and, and there's a lot of debate, as you can imagine, both for and against it being Jonah, and we'll talk more about that as we move through the book. Uh, we do know that it was written around 8 B.C. during the reign of Rehoboam II, and we know from 2 Kings 14 uh, that Jonah was from Gathephar, near Nazareth, and he is, of course, sent to Nineveh. Nineveh is very big, or was very big, very pagan, uh, very wicked, and very cruel. And it was actually the nemesis of both Israel and Judah. So you can imagine there was bad blood, and that bad blood led to a lot of animosity on Jonah's part for the people of Nineveh. That's the background of the book as we begin. We will be in the book of Jonah for the next four weeks. Tonight we're going to be in chapter 1 as Daniel has read. But if you would, let's stand in the honor of God's word again from Jonah 1. I want to read verses 1 to the middle of verse 3 and then jump down to verse 17. So hear now the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that you would use it for your glory and for our good. As we have already prayed, we would ask that we would be different as we leave because we have heard from you. Would you bend our wills to yours? May you use your word as you see fit. Bless us now, give us ears to hear, and may we see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. This chapter breaks down into four very nice sections, and so as you can imagine, our outline is going to be in four parts. We're going to look at God's directive, uh, Jonah's defiance, 
the sailor's decision and then God's uh, discipline. Let's look first at God's directive. We're not told why God chose Jonah. Uh, We are simply told what his call was. And it was an unmistakable call and it was in three parts. The first part there in verse 2 we read that the Lord told uh, Jonah to arise and go. And again, we're not told much about that. It could have come in a, a very loud, booming voice in the midst of rolling clouds and clapping thunder. Or it could have been in a still, small voice, much like Samuel experienced. But it's not the tone or the volume that's important. It's the content. And so what's more important than that tone or volume is the second and third parts of that call. And it's what arrested Jonah. Because the second and third parts were to go to Nineveh and to cry out against it. Now, of course, his reaction isn't recorded there. And so um, I'm, I'm speculating, but I can imagine him thinking to himself as, as just... As he hears what's being said, I can imagine Jonah saying, where do you want me to go? Are you sure this is what you want me to do? And and what do you want me to do? You want me to go to my enemy and you want me to put my life on the line. You want me to go to this wicked and cruel city and do what? Surely you're kidding. And again, we're not sure, but... I think that's a pretty safe bet considering the defiance and and how pronounced it was as we read in verse 3. Because the words are clear, but Jonah. But Jonah. In other words, Jonah has another set of plans and he completely ignores what it is that God wants to send him to do. So he didn't arise and go, he arose and fled And he didn't just walk or he didn't just turn and go down the street. He decided that he needed to go in the exact opposite direction. He goes to catch a ship in Joppa and to take that ship uh, ship to Tarshish, which was believed to be in the southern part of Spain. So he's not just going around the corner. So this isn't just disobedience. This is plain and utter defiance. He's basically put his foot down, as many of our children have done, as many of you children have done, stomped on the ground and looked at right in the eye and said, no. And we know that's not ever a good response. He didn't make just a few mistakes. He didn't simply just fail to do what he knew was right. He came up with a plan. It was a calculated plan. He turned his face from God. He went his own direction. He went to Joppa. He paid for the ride. He got on the boat and he went under uh, under deck. He was on the run. In listening to Alistair Begg preach on this passage many years ago, I was struck by his insight concerning this point. I remember him saying, isn't it interesting that when... Jonah gets to Joppa, the ship is there, ready to go, pointed in the direction that he wants to go. How convenient was it for him to just get on the ship and go? And what might he have said? He may have been just like us and thought, well, this has got to be right. Because all of the circumstances are lining up perfectly. But I don't know, of course, I do know. We can't always count on... Our circumstances, right, to determine 
um, what God's will is for our lives. Sometimes His will actually takes us into difficult circumstances. And also we know that at times disobedience can lead to something that at first might seem safe and good. But we also know that God definitely doesn't contradict Himself. We also know that He would never have called Jonah to go and then tempt him with a way out. This is all of Jonah's doing. But of course we know that this is the essence of sin. It's a beautiful, not a beautiful, but it's a very accurate and, and, and right picture of the sin that, that infects you and me. Uh, sometimes we simply fail to obey, but many times we stomp our foot and say no. And we do what we want, when we want, where we want, with whom we want, regardless of what we know to be right. It's our sinful bent. It's our nature. It's, it's who we are. And it's as if we believe that somehow we know better than God does. Somehow we know what's in our best interests. Somehow we know uh, what really needs to be done and how those things need to be done. We know the right direction to go. We know the right, um, the right decision that needs to be made. And in the end, all we're doing is satisfying our own flesh, our own sin, our own desires and wants and lusts and our own pride and arrogance. Many times, of course, we choose that which is easy and less demanding. And usually we choose those things that satisfy instantly or at least in the short term. But unfortunately, it not only affects us, but it affects those around us as well. And that's what brings us to verses 4 to 16 in the sailor's decision. Jonah pays his fare. He heads down below deck. He's tired, which, by the way, is usually uh, the result of disobedience and running from the Lord. And he hides and goes to sleep. Now, while he's below deck, God stirs up a great storm. The word that's used there is the word hurls. God hurls the storm. And it's the same word used to describe what the sailors will do in verse 5 as they chunk the cargo overboard. It's the same word that's used in verse 12 when Jonah says, hurl me over the side. It's the same word in verse 15 that describes what the sailors do to Jonah. So this isn't something that just slowly built up. It is something that came suddenly and with power. And it's such a severe storm that these sailors, even the sailors, are afraid. Imagine the type of storm that, that would, it would take to not only begin to, to shake and, dis, and, and move toward destroying the ship, but a storm in which sailors who were used to it would have been afraid. And as we heard Daniel read, it was something that grew and grew and grew and grew. These men are so afraid that they begin to pray to their own gods. And they do start to chunk things over the deck to make the boat more light. And at some point in this melee, again, we're not sure how they determine it. But we could guess that maybe the captain, in the midst of all that's going on, asked the first mate, you know, is everybody accounted for? 
And the first mate says, well, I saw this guy come on board and he went immediately b- below deck. I haven't seen him. And the captain goes below deck and and he wakes him up. You know, you're asleep. How, how could you be asleep? Wake up. How can you be asleep at a time like this? We're praying to our gods. We're throwing things overboard and you're down here oblivious to what's going on. You need to get above deck. He's wiping the sleep from his eyes and maybe even the drool from his chin and he heads on deck. And when he gets there, he realizes that all the sailors have had enough. And so they begin to cast lots to find out who's responsible. And just as a side note, those lots, there were two stones, one light on one side, dark on the other. And they would cast those. And if two light popped up, then that was positive. If two dark popped up, it was negative. And if there was one of each, it was kind of a wait and see. And as they're casting lots, it comes down and somehow, I guess they were taking turns with person to person. Is it Jack and throwing them? No. Is it John? No. And is it Jonah? It's him. He knew he was in trouble. And this would all seem so silly, but it, but of course we read in Proverbs 16.33 that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's really the Lord that turns Jonah in. And at the end of verse 7, the lots fall to him. The men begin to interrogate him. Where are you from? What's your name? Where are you from? How, what do you do for a living? And, and Jonah replies, I'm a Hebrew. He says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, the, the creator of dry land and, and the water. In other words, I, I trust in the Lord. I follow the Lord. I worship the Lord who created this storm. And Jonah understands this predicament that he has put everybody in. But in verse 10, as as he shares with them who he is and who he trusts in, it says the men grow even more afraid. They've more than likely heard the stories of the God of Israel. And so they grow more and more afraid and they begin to ask him, why did you drag us into this? Everything was fine. Why? We didn't do anything to you. Why would you why would you bring us into this between what should be between you and your God? It's interesting, isn't it, that they themselves are afraid of a God that they've only heard of and they don't know more than Jonah is afraid of the God that he knows. And somehow they gain their composure and they stop blaming him and then ask what he thinks they ought to do to fix the problem. And so Jonah, what, knowing what needs to be done to calm this storm, does what many would consider to be a noble thing. Right? Cast me over. I know this will say, cast me over the side. But it's not as noble as we give him credit for. Because what would really calm the storm? Go back and do what the Lord had said. Jonah is more interested in in dying than he is being obedient. But the men know, the men are afraid, the men realize this is what we need to do. And so they attempt to turn the boat around despite what Jonah says. But the storm doesn't calm because it's really Jonah's, Jonah remains defiant. Even if they were to go back to Joppa, the issue has not resolved itself because he remains defiant. So the sailors decide 
that they have no choice but to throw him over. But before they do, they acquire the Lord. They pray in verse 14 and they ask God to have mercy on them. They want to make sure that they're not held responsible for what Jonah's done. They're going to throw him over, but they want to make sure that they're not the cause of his death because that's what they believe is going to happen. That's what Jonah believes is going to happen. But they don't want his blood on their hands. They want to make sure that they're choosing correctly, even though the choice seems incredibly harsh. And in verse 15, the sailors give in. They bow to the sovereignty of God. And they understand their role as an instrument of his rather than the cause of Jonah's demise. And they determine what is right for everybody involved. And I want us to think, before we move to the end, I want us to think about three things in particular when we look at this, this middle section. One is, and there are going to be three, one is no one sins in a vacuum. You and I do not sin in a vacuum. How many times have innocent, innocent bystanders been affected by the sin of others? How many times have you been affected by somebody else's sin? How many times has your sin affected others? How often do we think that about how often do we think about the ramifications of our sin and their effects on others? Probably very rarely. Not enough, I'm sure. And you know, just this week I heard of two pastors who had to resign due to years of defiance and disobedience and deception. And what was left in their wake? Wives, children, family members, current members of their churches. And years and years of people to whom they've ministered. Shattered. Broken. Confused. And disillusioned. Grieving. Doubting. Angry. Brothers and sisters... Our sin doesn't just affect us. We don't live nor do we sin in isolation. Secondly, we learn that defiant, rebellious people put other people into positions in which they have to make very difficult decisions. How many times are innocent bystanders blamed Due to the disobedient person's inability to take responsibility for their own actions. How many times do, do those who are caught in sin try to shift the blame? How many people are left feeling guilty because they now have to make a decision that's right and difficult. Because again, the individual himself or herself is not taking responsibility. And though it doesn't happen in this story, how many times are those who are forced into making those decisions blamed and slandered by that person who has been caught in sin and they turned into the bad guy? And and 
This is the difficulty that we often encounter in church discipline. And the reason many churches fail to practice church discipline because it's very, very difficult. But the person who's caught in sin and the defiant member of that church places the church and places those in leadership in a position where a decision has to be made. And while the church is simply doing what is right and and being obedient, they are usually the ones cast in the role of the villain. And we live in a time when it happens more and more every day. And we've, we've, some of us have experienced it firsthand. And, and we follow that process of church discipline. And then people go out on social media and begin to create stories and slander. And everybody begins to believe that the church is the one in the wrong. But the price is... It is a price that the church should be willing to pay. And it's a price that we as believers should be willing to pay to do that which is right, to obey the word of God. And thirdly, we learn that God can use even our sin for his glory and our good and the good of others. There is good news in the midst of this. Right, we Notice what the sailors begin to do in, in the midst of everything going on. The sailors begin to cry out to Jonah's God. Now, earlier they're praying to all their gods, little G gods, and now they're crying out to the one true God. At the end of the, at the, end of the section, they're making vows to him. And, and there's debate. I, I understand there's debate about whether this is a, a genuine conversion on their part. We, we really don't know. But, but I, I, I tend to believe that, yes, it, it did take place because it would be just like the Lord to use the disobedience of of uh, Jonah to bring people to the Lord as much as it would be his obedience in bringing people to the Lord in Nineveh. We, we see him at work. And, and while this doesn't give us a license to go and do what we want to do because the Lord is going to do what, what he's going to do anyway, it does give us the security of knowing that that even in the midst of our disobedience and really dis, not just despite our disobedience, but use our disobedience for his glory, our good and the good of others. He's that good. He's that big. And of course, it would be much better to be to obey and be used. But it is reassuring to know that he can work with us even when we sin, no matter what that sin might be. And brothers and sisters, rest in the fact that you cannot thwart his sovereign will, even through your disobedience to his moral will. And none of us are beyond usefulness. What a great promise. So Jonah remained defiant. Um, he didn't blame the sailors. He took responsibility for his actions. He kind of, he, t- he told them to throw him over the edge. And they did. And that brings us to God's discipline. In verse 17, the Lord mercifully, right? Because everybody involved knows that he's going to die. He's going to sink to the bottom. And the song that we sang tonight comes straight from, it's one Aaron, Aaron, Wrote You put the words from the prayer to the music and, and we re- will read next week of of his prayer as he's sinking. 
And as he's in in the fish describing what was going through his head. But and so we know that the fish coming is very merciful. It's a merciful and kind act. And there are a lot of other things that we can imagine would have been better, right? It would have been better to have been thrown in, into the gallows of the ship or uh, in jail somewhere. Or it would have, would have been better to be placed on a desert island somewhere. But, but in the belly of a fish, uh, pretty nasty, uh, dirty, and I can imagine it didn't smell very good. It wouldn't have been the easiest thing to experience by any stretch. Dying would have... Probably been better. Again, it's what Jonah expected to do, but God had other plans. And God was going to make sure that the plan that he had was going to be fulfilled. And he wasn't going to let one person's no change the message that he wanted to send to Nineveh. He wasn't going to allow one person to change who delivered it. Jonah was not going to be allowed to remain defiant He was eventually going to do what God wanted him to do. But it was going to take the discipline of the Lord to bring it about. And God was not not going to allow anyone to cast a poor light upon himself. He wasn't going to allow anyone uh, to cast a shadow on his greatness. And so he steps in. And Jonah learned and we learned that the discipline of God is very reliable. We know that we can count on it and we can expect it. When, when there's ongoing defiance and ongoing disobedience on the part of those who are in Christ, discipline is sure to follow. And even though that discipline may be painful and it may be difficult, again, we know that it's merciful and kind. Listen to these words from the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For the, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Lord has a kind and merciful and gracious end in mind when he disciplines those that he loves. And so we know that it, that it's reliable and we also know that it's restorative and that's what we'll see next week. It's meant to bring back those who are defiant. It's meant to bring back those who are disobedient. It's meant to bring back uh, into fellowship those who are straying so that they might be restored and holiness might be produced. That's why it's merciful. So when we think about this, how do we respond? What is our response in light of of Jonah 1? And I want to break this down into two sections. First, for those who are Christians. And as I prayed earlier, my desire is for us to see Jesus. And for us as believers, I want to see Jesus as the one who covered our sin. The one who satisfied God's wrath on our behalf. The one who, uh, through his action and through his life and death, um, that we have been restored to a place where God looks upon us with favor. And that's a big deal because we know that because he's done that, there are we are not wait, awaiting punitive damages in any way for our sin. 
The wage of our sin has been paid once and for all through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not awaiting anything punitive. However, because of our justification, because of our standing, because of who we are in Christ, having been adopted, united to Christ and adopted into God's family, we should and can, we can and should expect discipline. And so let me say, if you are even now living in disobedience or in some sort of defiance, please, please stop running. Wake up. Repent of your sin and rest in the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ before discipline is necessary. And if for some reason you find yourself in the midst of discipline. If you're continuing in your rebellion and you had been continuing in your rebellion and and maybe you're you're continuing that and you're continuing in your discipline. Stop pushing back. Accept the discipline of the Lord due to that rebellion. Accept it. And then, of course, stop running. Wake up. Repent of your sin and receive the forgiveness that that God desires to offer you in, in the Lord Jesus and is offering in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a child of his. We learned in Ephesians we've been called to live in a manner worthy of that calling. That is his desire for you and for me. And may it be so. But if you aren't a Christian, the, the call is, is still the same. We desire, I desire, we desire for you to see Jesus as well. See the Lord Jesus. See Him as the one to whom Jonah points. And let me explain. There are differences between Jonah and Jesus, right? Jonah was suffering for his own guilt in disobeying the will of the Lord. Jesus took on the guilt of others... And in doing so, he was fully obedient to the Lord. So there is a stark contrast. And yet we read from uh, Matthew 12 earlier, Daniel read earlier, that Jesus compares Jonah's time in the fish with his time in the grave. So with that comparison, I think it's safe for me to say, because to look to Christ, the one to whom Jonah points... And I can say that because Jonah's sacrifice, in a way, saved the sailors. Right? He was thrown over. The fish came. The storm stopped. His sacrifice, in a way, saved the sinners. And so I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility for me to be able to say to you tonight, if you are not trusting in Jesus, let me say to you that tonight... You haven't perished in the storm of your sin because the Lord God is preserving you so that you might look to Christ who has made the full and final sacrifice on your behalf for sinners just like you and me. And the call tonight is to call upon the name of the Lord, to repent of your sin, to stop running, to wake up and to accept the forgiveness that God offers in Christ. He died so that we might live. Hear that call tonight. Respond to that call tonight. Now is is the time to call out to Him. Repent and receive that forgiveness. Let's pray together. Father, we are so 